So I was just saying, someone leaves me Legos up here every week, so I guess that's fitting when we're talking about children and parents. I'm, I'm hoping it's a child uh, that's leaving these up here for us. Uh, today, before we get into our message, I just want to honor those who died on September the 11th, 15 years ago today, so the 15th anniversary. Just like uh, I grew up as a, as a small child hearing that everyone knew, everyone could remember where they were when JFK was shot in 1963. And I guess that for many of us here today, September the 11th is, is similar in that way that many of us can remember. I can still, I was at Paris Island, South Carolina, Marine Corps boot camp when September the 11th happened, which was kind of odd. And I can still remember some of the guys in the platoon that I was in who were kind of called out because they had family in uh, the World Trade Centers. Or they had uh, people who have close friends, friends of family, and they were sort of called out and able to call and talk with their families and that kind of thing. So it affected many people directly, indirectly, but it, effect, it affected us all as a nation. And so today we just take a moment just to remember the people who died, especially those who responded, to help their neighbor, to love their neighbor, just as Christ has commanded us to do, to love their neighbor. And we saw that. We saw that with many. I had to watch it in videos later, after September 11th, after I got back from boot camp in October. But the videos of the firefighters and the policemen rushing in to help, and then all of the military personnel who lost their lives afterwards in, in fighting, trying to, trying to fight in Afghanistan and so on. So we just take a moment today to remember them. The great English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge was once talking with a man who thought it very unfair to influence a child's mind with any opinions before the child should come to the age to choose for itself. We see that kind of thinking among many in our culture. Let them figure it out. Don't influence their minds. Coleridge then showed him his garden and told him it was his botanical garden. He pointed at it. His friend exclaimed, how so? It is covered with weeds. Coleridge replied, oh, that is only because it has not yet come to the age of discretion and choice. The weeds, you see, have taken the liberty to grow. And I thought it unfair in me to prejudice the soil towards roses and strawberries. So what we're going to look at this morning is that it is our job as parents to prejudice very much the soil of the hearts of our children towards roses and strawberries. That is, towards the truth of God. We are teachers, we're educators, and that's what we've seen as we've looked at the very end of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We, we read there, that we are to bring up our children, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This language, we've looked at it in detail, but this language in general shows us that at the core of who we are as parents, we are teachers and educators. We are those who are very much cultivating the truth of God in the lives of our children. And so uh, this is the third sermon on parents, and this is the final sermon on our, in our series, My Family for His Glory. This is the 13th sermon 
on our text, Ephesians 5, 22 to 6-4. So some of you are thinking, oh no, we can't depart from this series. And some of you are thinking, this is wonderful. Let's go. Let's get out of this. So our next series will be Titus. We'll just be going through, as we were with the, the Gospel of John, we'll be going through the book of Titus. And I'll just remind you, that's the primary thing that we do here as a church in terms of preaching is we preach through books. But we take time away sometimes from whole books and look at very particular special sections of Scripture like we've done with Ephesians 5, 22 to 6 which really is the most elaborate, in-depth teaching that we find in the Bible on the family. And so we've really tried to camp out there and spend some time looking at what God's vision is for our homes. We have a lot of young families in this church, a lot of small children. As Joanna is reminding me all the time, that's, but we're busting at the seams back there with children. And so we very much see this as a priority in the life of our church in particular, really. And this emphasis on bringing up our children in the Lord forces us to ask an important question, one that we have not specifically asked yet and one that we will finish this series with. What should we be teaching them? What should we be teaching our kids? If we are educators and teachers, what's the content that we should be teaching them? I mean, there, there's a, a lot of things you could say here and I don't pretend to exhaust this, this subject today. Uh, obviously, we teach them the Bible. We teach them things like catechisms which are based on biblical theology. We teach them about Christ, about the gospel. We teach them about the centrality of the glory of God in all of life. We teach them wisdom and so forth. And we'll look at some of those things today. But what I hope to do today is give you something specific to kind of hang your efforts on as you leave here and you go out from this series and you say, okay, I've resolved by God's grace for his glory to be this kind of parent. I want to be this kind of mom. I want to be this kind of dad. So what do I go about teaching my children? And an important background passage for Ephesians 6, 4 is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so I'll just ask you, go ahead and turn there because that's actually what we will be looking at in detail today. As we bounce off of chapter 6, verse 4, as we end this series, we, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we've been there a little bit already in verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. We get the command that God's truth should be taught to children diligently. Diligently teach them, God's people are told. And as we consider what to teach, I want to draw your attention to verses 20 to 25. I think there we have an answer to this question, what is it that we should be teaching our children? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 25, that's what I'll read now. When your son asks you in time to come, <clears throat> what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God 
as he has commanded us. Notice in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of all of this? That tells us before we even get into the the specific content that we are to impart to our children that there should be such a culture, such an environment of, and I I use this word in, in in its truest sense, of religiosity. True religion, James even says, true religion is this. I don't mean religion in terms of legalism or crossing the T's and dotting the I's. I mean true religiosity, true focus on what is good and right and true. True focus on God. There's a culture of that, an environment of that in the home And it's out of that, that a son or a daughter turns around and looks at mom and dad and says, why are we doing this stuff? What is the meaning of all of this? So if you don't have a culture where there is the people of God, the word of God, songs about God, worship of God, service unto God, your children may not ask this question. And it may be very long before they ever get around to thinking that these things are even important. So just notice that before we get into these points that this is a context in which children see lots of activity about the Lord. Lots of talk and thought and emphasis on the Lord and it's out of that that they turn and they ask, why? What is the meaning of all of this that we are doing? Before we get into what we're going to look at this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are so good to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that you sent him to die for sinners and that you raised him from the dead and that you fulfilled all of Scripture in him. We thank you, Father, that by believing in him, we have eternal life and we have the hope of one day being with you forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And God, now you call us to follow you You call us to trust in your son, to cling to him with all that we are. And God, we pray that we will do that and that we will impart that way of life to the next generation. God, as we leave this series, we ask your blessing on it. I pray that the things that have stuck into each of our individual hearts through these 13 sermons, God, that that as we've walked through very carefully these verses from your word, God, that you've penetrated hearts as you have saw fit as you've seen fit, Lord, that you have spoken to individual lives and you have convicted and you've comforted. And Lord, I pray that you will just continue that work, that it won't stop, that Satan will not come and steal that work away, but God, that it will be perpetuated day in, day out, week in, week out, throughout the months, throughout the years. And God, that this will will be a, a stable foundation for us moving forward as families. God, we thank you for your word and we see in it such depth and such richness And we pray, God, that our love for your Bible will grow and grow and grow as it is taught and understood and discussed in gospel community groups. Lord, we offer you our time today as worship. Though imperfect, we pray that worship and love will guide everything that we do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So five things to teach our children that we can draw out of these Verses, verses 20 to 25. This is a starting point. This is really a a good way to think about the education of your children. This is what the Lord, through Moses, tells parents, if they ask you, this is what you tell them. And I think that all of God's people throughout redemptive history 
can grow from these principles, can learn from these, and can impart these to the next generation. Obviously, the people of Israel at the Exodus, which is what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter six, the Exodus has occurred, and the people of God are coming out, and they're about to go into the promised land. They're coming out of the wilderness now. They were in slavery in Egypt, and now they're coming out. They've they've come out into the wilderness, and now God is gonna bring them into the promised land through Joshua. Obviously, their place in redemptive history is different from our place in redemptive history. But these truths are across time. They are relevant for every believer in the one true God across all time, all the way from Adam until the last people on earth when Christ returns. So five things to teach our children. First, God's deliverance. Look at verse 21. Deuteronomy 6, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is exactly what is recounted in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. So we know that we get the story about Moses and how he was brought up in, in Pharaoh's household and how he, he fled from Egypt after killing a man, protecting a, a fellow Hebrew. He was a Hebrew, but he was raised an Egyptian. And at one point he steps in and he kills an Egyptian slave master because this slave master was beating a Hebrew. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They are not just in some kind of bondage where they're made to work, they're made to work harshly. They're made to work all day. They're dying from their labor. They're in utter oppression. Moses flees for his life and he goes out. From there to Arabia, he goes out and God appears to him in a burning bush. And God speaks to him there. And he tells him, I want you, Moses, to go back to Egypt. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to bring my people out, to to let my people go, and you bring my people out. And of course, we know what happened. Moses went and Pharaoh did not. He did not want to let his slaves go free. And so God brought 10 plagues upon the Egyptians and ultimately took the firstborn son of every household. That was the final plague. And Pharaoh finally conceded and he said, take them, go. And so God led all of his people out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, just wandering out into the middle of nowhere. But God was with them. And that's what we read when we open up the pages of Exodus, that's what we encounter, is God brought bringing his people from a condition of total oppression and slavery, of bondage to freedom. From slavery to freedom, but not just that. We learn in Deuteronomy 4.20 that God brought them from being an enslaved people to a people of his own special possession. So we're not just talking about they're enslaved and then God brings them out and says, now go free. We're saying God brings them out of slavery and he draws them to himself and he, he puts a, a, a massive protection around them and he says, you're my people. I will guide you, I will guard you. You are my special possession. And now as Christians, we recognize that God's deliverance of Israel through Moses all along was meant to point to Christ. That Christ is the one who offers the true deliverance, the ultimate deliverance, and that's deliverance from sin and death. And so listen to the slavery and freedom language that we get from Paul in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. He says this, Thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves of sin, a far worse oppression than that which oppressed the Israelites in Egypt. The oppression of sin and all of that liberation was meant to move towards this liberation. Once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have, having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And listen to this. He goes on in verse 22 to say, slaves of God. Slaves of sin to slaves of God. Just as we have in Deuteronomy. Slaves of the Egyptians, slaves of Pharaoh to a people of my own possession. People who belong. Not just to people who are free, but a people who belong to God. So how do we teach this to our children? How do we teach to our children that God is the deliverer? He's the rescuer, the liberator, the redeemer. He's the one who brings out people, his people, from slavery to freedom. Well, we continually put before them a before and after picture. I think that's basically what we're always about as parents. If we are going to teach our kids that God delivers, that God is the deliverer, then we must always be putting before them a before and after picture. We all know those before and after pictures, especially if you start going to the gym and you walk around and you see those all over the place because personal trainers are wanting you to hire them so that they can turn you from that into that. And so we're familiar with that all the time, these before and after pictures. And that is what we must be about in training up our children. We must always be giving them the before of slavery and the after of freedom. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So that the language that we get, which is the book we've been looking at, the language that we get in Ephesians 2 is very interesting. Those first three verses are packed with just, uh, for lack of a better word, badness. They're just packed with, with evil and hardship and just a bad condition. We read in those opening verses of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, under, that we are under the dominion of sin, death, hell, the flesh, the world, the devil. Read that. Read those three verses. I won't read it now. But you see all of those taskmasters there. There's bondage, there's, there's dominion over us. And then we get to that amazing verse, verse four. If you have Ephesians two pulled up, you'll see it. What are the first two words of verse four in Ephesians two? But God. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we have with the Israelites as, as God brings them out of slavery. They were in slavery, they were in bondage, but God showed up. God showed up through Moses and he liberated the people. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament. We were in bondage to our sin, in a condition of death, of hell, of the flesh, the world, the devil. But God, God showed up and he liberated us in Christ. And the verses go on to say that he made us alive together with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. So this is what God has done for us in Christ. Christ. We need to teach our kids this. God's deliverance. Before, bondage, slavery. After, freedom, possession, God's own possession. How do we do this? Well, we teach them this from the Bible. We tell them stories like what we have just looked at in the Exodus, but we also teach them the truth about the Redeemer, the one who came to liberate us, about Christ. But another key way I think that we teach this to our kids 
is we tell them about this in our own life and we evidence it in our own life. And what I mean by this is we are, we are explaining, you know, one of the things some of us think, I'm not telling my kids what I did when I was a teenager. I'm not telling my kids what I did when I was 22 or 25. They don't need to know that. And that may very well be the case. That's a wisdom call. But the point is simply to teach our children that we were once in bondage to sin and God saved us and he could do the same for them. He can do the same for them. He can deliver them. We want them to understand that there is a before and there is an after. And as they're small and they're growing up, we want to show them that they are living in the before, if that makes sense. They need to see that they are in the before and they need to be in the after. They need to be liberated from their sin. And so when they sin, when they disobey, when they disrespect, and they will, they will, they will, when they do that, we must teach them that the reason they do that is because their little heart is enslaved to sin and they need the Redeemer. We're always pointing them out of their bondage to their liberator, to their Redeemer. We have to show them the truth of what Jesus says in John eight thirty four: Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When they sin against God's law, when they disobey their mother and their father, when they disrespect their mother and their father and so forth, they need to understand that that practice of sin comes from a heart that is enslaved to sin. <clears throat> That's an important aspect of what it means to train up our children in the way they should go, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And also on a practical note, I think this teaches two very important virtues that we oftentimes want our kids to have. It teaches them humility. When you teach a child that, you know, obviously there's, there's lots of sort of cultural influences that it's all about their own little self-esteem. It's all about that ego just being held up and, and, and just made greater and greater and greater in their own minds. But our objective is to teach our kids humility. Not to puff them up with pride, with arrogance, to think that they're better, to think that they're, they're somehow unique from all the others that God has made, but to, to help them to understand that they are one with others, that they are just like their friends, they're just like everyone else in the same condition, and to teach them humility, that in that condition there is no hope, in that condition there is bondage, but God can raise them up out of that condition. It also teaches them gratitude. They learn to understand that there is a good God who does wonderful things for people and that we ought to be grateful. We ought to be thankful to him for this liberation which he has brought us. And so we must teach our kids, most fundamentally, about God's deliverance. And if you understand that, all of the rest of these sort of flow out of that, really, to be honest. And that's the reason why, throughout the Old Testament, the, the idea of the exodus, the idea of God bringing his people out of slavery and into freedom is constantly reiterated. You see it throughout the Psalms. You see it throughout the prophets. That is the one thing that is held up above all other things in the Old Testament is remember what God did for us in the wilderness. Remember how he brought us out of slavery. Remember how he did signs and wonders and mighty things our presence everything flows out of that verse 21 now as we move to God's power verse 21 says that God delivered his people and look at this with a mighty hand look at verse 22 
we read this. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household. So we teach our children about God's deliverance. We also teach our children about God's power. And this refers, I think the latter part of this refers specifically to the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians, to the parting of the Red Sea as the, the Israelites came up against the sea, probably my favorite story in all the Bible. The Israelites come up against the sea and in front of them is a sea and behind them is a great army. They have nowhere to go. But God, that's the big difference. But God, and he parts the sea and he makes the ground dry so that not only do they walk through, but they walk through easily. They walk through without getting stuck in the mud, without their wheels, without, without their feet getting stuck in the mud, whatever they have. A clear passage through the sea. And then, of course, what does God do? As the Egyptians come in chasing after them, foolish, foolish move. I don't know what they were thinking. But as the Egyptians ran in after them to take them, God closed the sea down upon the Egyptian people and the Pharaoh and killed Pharaoh's army. So among God's people, parents are to teach their children that God has been powerful, mighty, and wondrous in his works. Listen to this in Psalm 78.4. Maybe you've encountered this passage. Joanna and I were recently discussing kind of the vision for the children's ministry. And this was a passage that came up as we talked about that. Psalm 78.4. We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And his might and the wonders that he has done. And as Christians, we know that the greatest of God's works, all those wonderful things we read about in the Old Testament, all those great miraculous works that we read about in the New Testament, all of those works are smaller in terms of the, the power manifested and in terms of the effect. All of those works pale in comparison to this one work. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The greatest work of God. The most glorious deed of God. The greatest miracle that the world has ever seen. God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Giving us hope that we too will one day be raised from the dead. So I want to tell you this about our son Jake. When he was a little bit before the age of two... We had this little toddler Bible. Basically, it was just pictures. A few words. And we would go through and we would just tell him the stories, the Bible stories, you know, all of those. Well, you know, maybe it's a, little, a boy thing. But he locked on to David and Goliath because he just couldn't get enough of the rock going in his forehead. I mean, this is a little boy thing. Uh, and so he just, he loved that story. He just constantly, constantly wanted to read that one. It, I, I forget even how he said it at that time, you know, with his broken words, two years old. But he wanted that story all the time. And so uh, about the time of his second birthday, our parents gave us a, a DVD of Bible stories. And one of the Bible stories on there was David and Goliath. And so, of course, now Jake could see that in movie form. And so he would just constantly watch that. It was like a 30-minute Little, little story of David and Goliath. It does a pretty good job. But at the end of that, all of the people, after David kills Goliath with his slingshot, 
And Goliath falls down and David stands up on top of him. And after that, all of the people, the Israelites, they put David on their shoulder and they kind of parade him around, you know, and Saul, show Saul kind of looking down on that, not being very happy, being pretty jealous. And if you know the story, you'll understand what's going on there. But one of the things that I tried to teach Jake at that point was to say, at the end of that, at the end of the story, I would always say, and God's people said, the Lord is great. And here's why. Because it's very easy for a little kid to learn that story and to think, man, I want to be like David. He was so tough. He was small, but he fought Goliath. And of course, that's great. And David's courage and David's faith are, are a, a obvious part of the story. But what's far more fundamental, what the story is about, is the power of Israel's God. Israel's God showed up when David killed Goliath. Just like Israel's God showed up at the Exodus when God brought his people out of slavery and poured his wrath on the Egyptians. And as we look closely at our text here, we see that God exercises his power. This is an important point to get. God exercises his power in salvation and in judgment. So look at verse 21 again. We have God's deliverance, what? With a mighty hand. That is God's power being exercised in salvation for his people. But then, notice this word in verse 22. It occurs twice. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh. That tells us that God demonstrates his power. He exercises his power, not just in salvation, but also in judgment. And these always come together. And by the way, let me say this. This is the reason God tells us not to seek vengeance, not to seek revenge when people wrong us. It's because, because God tells us that he will vindicate us on that day when he brings vengeance upon those who do us evil. We are comforted then both by the truth that God brings salvation powerfully and that God brings salvation through, he brings judgment powerfully. Both of these things are meant to bring God's people comfort. So when we teach our kids that God is powerful as savior and as judge, I think we're teaching them two main things. God is powerful as a savior and God is powerful as a judge. I think in that we're teaching them two main things. And the first is this. We are teaching our children to hope in God. Psalm 78, four, which I just read to you, goes on to say this. It says that the next generation is taught the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and his wonders, and listen to this. Here's the relationship. So that they should set their hope in God. When God's power is made great, when God's power is held up and exalted and we see it, and we see it in all of its wonder and all of its awesomeness, when we see that, we begin to set our hope in God. You know, your kids, my kids, I can put an S on that now, one's in the belly. Our kids are gonna face troubles. They live in a broken world just like we have, just like we will. They live in a broken, fallen world. They're going to face very difficult times. And here's the one thing that our children need to know, must know, is that they can run to God. He is a shelter. What does the Bible call him? These words, we love these Psalms. 
He's a fortress. All that that image gives us in terms of comfort. He is a stronghold to those who trust in him. We want our children to run to God when they're in trouble. We want them not just to run to God when they're in trouble, but we want them to set all of their hope in God and not in their circumstances. We don't want them to think, man, if only life were better, if only I made more money, or if only I had more friends, or if only people liked me at school better, or, or whatever the case might be, whatever the case might be. We don't want them to set their hope in those things. We want them to set their hope in God. And they do this as a result, as we see, from teaching them about God's power. He's a stronghold and a fortress for those who trust in him. We also, I think, teach our kids this. As we hold him up as powerful, as savior and judge, we also teach our kids this, that they should fear God. You know, this is a, a concept that is, is, is not very popular. Fear God, it just doesn't sound right. And part of, the, part of the reason for that is we just don't fear God. We love our sin. And the other part of the reason why that doesn't sound right is because we misunderstand what it means. We think that as believers we should always be afraid that God's going to smite us. He's going to punish us. Any little thing and any bad thing, this is bad theology teaching in churches, any bad thing that's going on in my life, it's because God is smiting me. Because God is just taking it out on me. He's angry with me. We know that God is not angry with us because he poured out his anger on Jesus for us. We know that God looks at us with delight as sons and daughters. He disciplines us, but he does not in an angry fashion smite us, punish us as we would understand it in that way. This is not our heavenly father. So then what does it mean to fear God? Well, first let me point this out. Why is it that holding up the power of God as Savior and Judge, why is it that that creates a fear of God? Well, it's probably obvious to you, but I want to show you this. Exodus 14, 31. Notice this. When Israel saw, I love this. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. Can you imagine when they went through the sea and they turned around and they saw the entire sea come down on the Egyptian army? When they saw this, it says that the people feared the Lord. They feared the Lord when they beheld his power. If we want our children to fear God, we must show them his might, his strength, his greatness, his power. And I think this involves three things, really. It involves reverencing him in all. Just do this. Imagine the face, the facial expression of the Israelites when the sea came crashing down on the Egyptians. That's the facial expression that we want our children to have all the time from the heart. We want our children to be in a state of reverential awe of God. Now they get blown away by all kinds of things. Children have that sense of wonder that we lose but we want that wonder to be in God. And they get this through seeing his power. And it's reverential, which means it's serious. We want to teach our kids. Here's the thing, there's a church culture today which the things of God aren't serious. It's trivial, it's, it, everything's just so flippant. And, and it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to worship God. It's not a big deal to gather together. It, it's, it's, it's very casual. Everything is so casual. 
The disposition of people is casual. The way we talk about God is casual. We don't want that in our children. We want them to reverence God. We want them to see him as awesome, as great, not as just another thing. Reverence him in all. We also teach them to set him apart as holy, to see him as distinct. There is God and then there is everything else. There's God. He is in a category of his own. He's not even in a category. He defies categories. He is, as he tells Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am. That is God. No one else can claim that. No one else is like God. He is holy. And it also means to submit to his will in obedience. We teach our children to obey mom and dad because that is God's will. That is God's law. That is what God has commanded them to do. And you know, I even read in Shepherding a Child's Heart, interesting idea here to teach it this way, that we actually, when we discipline our children, we say to them that I have done this because this is what God has commanded me to do. We are disciplining our children out of obedience to God. And we are teaching them that they too ought to obey God. And their obedience to God is to obey us. Our obedience to God is to discipline them when they don't obey us. So submitting to God's will in obedience. Only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit can any of this, is any of this realized? Is any of this appropriated? And we see in Jeremiah 32, 40, the new covenant through Christ's death, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. How, are, how will our children ever come to fear God when they get a new heart? But there is a kind of terror And I'll say this, there is a kind of fear of God that unbelievers have that leads them to the cross. People should be taught about hell. It is real. God's judgment, his wrath is real. God's wrath abides on the world. God's wrath is coming upon the world. Read the description of what will happen on that day when Christ returns in Revelation 21. You won't have a warm and fuzzy feeling, uh, idea of Jesus anymore. He won't be just this really nice guy figure. He comes in blazing fury. He comes in wrath and he comes to destroy human beings who are sinners against God, who hate God and hate his Christ. He will take vengeance on the earth. There is a real judgment. There is real hell. Our kids need to know that. And they need to understand that apart from Christ, they fall under that. To not teach them that is to rob them of the only thing that can save their soul. God's power. We also must teach our children God's revelation. Everything that was described in verses 21 and 22 was done, look at verse 22, was done in this way. I love this. There's three words at the end. You could easily skip over these if you read this too quickly. Before our eyes. God did all these wonders. God did all these deeds. He did all this saving. He did all this judging before our eyes, it says. And this language before our eyes would have communicated to Israelite children that the Lord is not distant or hidden. Although he is holy and the sacrificial system was meant to communicate that. Read through Leviticus. Some would say, well, I'm not reading Leviticus. It's pretty boring. But read through Leviticus because Hebrews, read Leviticus, read Hebrews together and Hebrews will will explain to you what Leviticus is about. But read Leviticus and the one message that you must get that's so important is God is holy. 
God is holy. And we know that. Israel was never told anything other than that. Everything God did to them and with them communicated his holiness. But nonetheless, this holy God made himself known, made himself present. He did not hide himself. He did not hide his glory. He did not hide his love or his power. He made himself entirely known before their eyes. As Christian parents, we teach our kids that God has revealed himself, that they can learn about him. You know, kids, our kids need to know that. They need to know, our children need to know that they can find out more about God. They can continue to grow in their knowledge of who God is. And through that, more importantly, they can grow to know him personally. To know him experientially as they read about him in his word, as they know about him from the world he has made. So I think that as we think about how do we do this, how do we... How do we teach our kids that God is one who reveals? How do we focus on God's revelation? Well, the first thing, well, let me give you two things here. We teach them to observe and we teach them to cherish. Two words, to observe and to cherish. Romans 1.20 says this, for God's invisible attributes. It's amazing what God shows us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature, listen to this language, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? Where are these things found? In the things that have been made. We are teaching our children to funnel all of that wonder, all of that awe that they have in their little minds, those little sponges, and we're funneling that into teaching them to observe God's creation. And here's the thing, to refer everything back to him. Everything they see. Every rock, every tree. And one of the most exciting things to do is go to the zoo with a child. Take a child to the aquarium, to the zoo. Let them see all these wonders that God has made. I mean, you go to the aquarium in Atlanta. Apparently, it's the largest one in the world. I think that's what I've heard. But you go, you go to the aquarium in Atlanta, and it's just incredible the different kinds of fish that you see. I mean, I, you have no idea. Why did God make this one and that one? And, and that one is it's all the different colors, all the different shapes. The sea dragon, is that right? The sea dragon is probably, to me, um, the most interesting. But they see all of these things and they are meant to observe them carefully, to look at them and to see in them God, to see their maker, to immediately springboard off of everything in his world. And I mean everything in his world and see the maker, the creator of everything and to begin to worship him through that. And then even more, we teach them to cherish, to cherish the Bible. Notice I didn't say read. I didn't say listen. I said cherish we teach our children not just to engage with the Bible, read a little bit here and there. We teach them that this is a precious, precious thing. Are we teaching our kids that? The Bible is precious. The most basic way to do this is to read it yourself and for them to see that. They will not ever think that the Bible is precious if we don't think it's precious. And we won't think it's precious until we get into it and begin to discover all of its richness, all of its fullness, and how it does in many ways change our hearts. We teach this by example and we teach this through our words. Fourth, we see God's faithfulness as something that we need to teach our children. Look at verse 23. 
Chapter six, verse 23, God's faithfulness. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land, and here it is, that he swore to give to our fathers. That he swore to give to our fathers. This is a reference to God's promise, first to Abraham, then to his son Isaac, then to his son Jacob, and by extension to the 12 sons of Jacob. You will remember that Jacob had 12 sons. There's the story about how uh, Jacob's sons, Jacob, by the way, his name was changed to Israel. That's the reason his sons and their descendants are called Israelites. And so Jacob or Israel had 12 sons, and you'll remember that the, the sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt, and that's how they got to Egypt in the first place. God was working providentially through all of that. And then through that, God brought them later through Moses out of Egypt. But going back to Abraham, God says this to him in chapter 12, verse 7. To your offspring, I will give this land, the land of Canaan. And then in chapter 15, verses 13 to 14, this is what God tells Abraham will happen. Know for certain, don't you love that language? God wants you to really believe. He wants you to trust. He wants us to know his word is true, it's trustworthy. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is what happened in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So parents were to teach their children that God keeps his promises. Look, son, God promised our father Abraham and look at what he did. He kept his word. He is faithful. He is true to his word. And this is exactly what we teach our children, that God is faithful. And we will be starting our series next week on Titus. We'll be going through the book of Titus. And just as you enter into that book, those first few verses, I want you to hear this. The first three verses of Titus, we get the, these words about God. It says, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and here it is, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word. And it goes on from there, quite a long sentence. Paul got excited often, as he wrote these epistles. God doesn't lie. You know, we, we lie. We don't keep our word, even in little things, right? We say we'll be home at 5.30, we get home at 5.50, you know, things like that. We don't keep our word even in the small things, and we lie. We tell little lies, we tell big lies, we tell inadvertent lies, but God doesn't. He's faithful, he keeps his promises. And our children need to know that even though they will see dishonesty even in us, duplicity, hypocrisy, even in us, that they will never see that in God. That he will always be faithful. He will always keep his promises. And he will keep his promises to bring us into a new heaven and a new earth. Just as sure as Christ came, Moses promised the people in Deuteronomy 18, he said, a prophet greater than me, greater than I, shall come. And you must listen to him. That's Christ. He did come and he died just as Isaiah said he would. He died, sins were placed upon him and he was raised from the dead just as the psalmist says. 
God did not abandon his soul to shale. God did not abandon his soul to hell. That he was raised up from the dead. Uncorrupted. God will keep the promise he's made to us. The spirit of God living in us tells us one day we'll be raised. One day we will be with him forever. And that awaits us. And our kids need to know that they can trust that. They can bank everything on that. Finally, as we finish up this morning, God's way. Look at verses 24 to 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. All that we find here can be summed up by saying that parents were to teach their children to live life God's way. And that's exactly what we want for our kids. We want them to live life God's way. Not their own way. See, they, our children need to understand that their, their will, their self-will, will frequently come into contact, come up against, in hostility to God's will. And they need to understand that the will of the world, the way of the world, will come into conflict often with the way of God. Because the way of the world and the way of God are opposed to one another. Hostile to one another. Contrary to one another. And if our children don't know that there's a principle within them and a principle around them that is contrary to God, they will fall right into that way instead of God's way. We want them to go God's way. And as we finish today, I think this involves putting three things before them. First, a wise life. Think about the writer of Proverbs. He's trying to teach his son wisdom. Do we use the word wisdom with our children? Do we say to them, I want you to be wise. I want you to grow up and be wise, to seek wisdom like precious treasure, as the writer of Proverbs says. Put that in their mind, that wisdom is a thing to be sought after above all the things of this world. And we know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And we've already looked at how that gets brought into the heart. Firstly, by teaching them about God's power. And secondly, by the Holy Spirit who makes that, who makes that sure and seals that and gives that authenticity in the heart as they begin to see God as awesome. And the Holy Spirit works that conversion in their heart so that they begin to fear God in the right kind of way. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. We want our children to live a wise life, not a foolish life. And you can read Proverbs for all, the, all of the implications of a wise life. We want them to live a good life. I mean, as, as I said before, how many parents will say, I want my children to be happy? Of course, everybody says that. But everybody doesn't mean the same thing. A good life or a happy life. Verse 24 says this, for our good always. Do you see that in verse 24? Look at it. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. God offers us a happy life. Now hold on a second. 
God doesn't offer us all kinds of material prosperity. He doesn't offer us a good health. He doesn't say to us, you'll necessarily have good health and you'll have lots of money and life will just be great and everything will be perfect. You'll have no bad circumstances. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us will happen. We will face many trials, many persecutions, that God works in our affliction so we can help other people who are being afflicted, that God uses our trials in our lives to build up endurance and hope in God. So we know that that's not true. But truly happy in the beatitude sense. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. That is the Hebrew word asharei. It means happy. Happy are those. This is true happiness. This is joy. And this is ultimately eternal life. It spills over into eternal life. We want our children to have a good life. Here and in the life to come. And there's no better place to end this series than to make this point, and that is we want our children to have a Christ-centered life. Verse 25 says this, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And here's the thing. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. All of our righteousness, we are told, is but filthy rags. It is nothing. It is, it is an abominable, blasphemous attempt to please a God whom we've sinned against and from the heart always sin against. There is no room for self-righteousness. There is no room for earning our salvation. There is no room here for keeping commandments so that God will say, good, you've done enough, you can come into heaven now. No, all of this points us to Christ's righteousness. All of this tells us that what we need is not a perfect life with all of the T's crossed and I's dotted and everything in step, all of our ducks in a row. What we need is Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness imputed to us so that when God looks down from heaven, he sees us, he sees his perfect, spotless son and he says, my son, perfect, righteous, holy, good, obedient, enter into my glory, enter into my heaven. His righteousness is our standing and life and Jesus' Holy Spirit is the one. When righteousness is applied to us, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, it is the Holy Spirit of Jesus who then comes in turns our heart, gives us a new heart, and we then begin to walk in that same righteousness that defined Christ's life because throughout our lives, the Holy Spirit conforms us into his perfect, righteous image. Day by day, this is what our kids so desperately need from us. Will we do it by God's grace? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for how clear your word is, how clear you manifest your glory in creation. But God, how much clearer we see you in your word. We see your deliverance, we see your power, we see your revelation, your faithfulness, and we see your wise and Christ-centered life, which you lay out for us and you call us to. God, if there's someone here today who's never trusted Jesus Christ and they have, they have experienced today the conviction of the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ, I pray, Father, that you'll give them the courage to come and speak with us after the service, 
that they'll find one of us, that they'll find me and tell me the Lord changed my heart. The Lord was gracious to me. He changed my heart. I wanna live for him now all the days of my life. God, would you help us to live this kind of life and help us to impart this to the coming generation that they might make much of you on the earth. In Christ's name, amen.